Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in North Texas. Here's your host, Eric Egan. Our guest on this episode is Barry Wilkinson, a North Texas father of six who has been called an inventor. He doesn't like to call himself an inventor, though. He talks in terms of developing ideas for solving problems or improving ways of doing things. But a few years ago, he had an opportunity to appear on a national ABC TV show called The Toy Box to showcase a toy he had designed. And that toy was then produced and marketed by Mattel. And now Barry is working on developing some other ideas as well. Perhaps one of Barry's most important accomplishments has been reinventing himself as he emerged as a young adult from a difficult childhood and family situation prioritizing decisions to develop his faith and establish a testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And his testimony has been essential in setting his course for life. Barry, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Eric, for uh, having me on. Excited to be on and tell my story. Let's start out by getting to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up? I mainly grew up in Mesa, Arizona. My father was a uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force in the Korean War. Shortly after the war, he went to uh, chiropractic school in Missouri, where I was born, only there for 18 months. His last year, he was in a car crash and died. So my mom moved back to Arizona and was raising eight kids by herself. I was thankful to be the youngest. I kind of observed and saw what everybody else did and, and uh, got the least since I was the youngest, got the least of all the... Uh, crazy things that were happening with uh, kids that were growing up with no parent at home because my mom was always working. So yeah, very difficult circumstances. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, this is uh, crazy. You know, not very many people grew up. Then you, as you get older, you realize it was, it's pretty common. Lots and lots of people grew, you know, single parent family. Yeah. That certainly seems to be more and more the case. And I would assume growing up that way really kind of shaped your life in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, let, let me appreciate uh, freedom. I grew up in so in Arizona and in the hot desert, out in the middle of the desert with lizards, rattlesnakes, uh, spiders, all kinds of things. Just we were kind of out, out out of the city limits, so we just entertained ourselves. There was a canal in back of our yard, and go swimming back there, and and uh, just just a lot of crazy things catching, shooting snakes and almost getting bit by rattlesnakes, eating them. My brother would bring them home and he uh, cooked them up one day and we all tried it. It tasted like chicken. So just, (laughs) of course. Yeah, exactly. Everything tastes like chicken. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun as I look back on it that I had, uh, you know, the the freedom just ran around and did whatever I want. But during it, some, you just kind of wish you had some direction. My mom got remarried, so we moved to Montana. Uh, my stepdad was in love with Montana. And then uh, I didn't realize this at the time, but he was retired Air Force. And so he wanted to dabble in real estate. So he got his real estate license. He moved us to Ohio, back to Montana, back to Ohio, uh, California, Missouri, and kind of toured the United States a little bit moving around and then uh, finally went back to Montana where I graduated and then 
came back to Arizona and that's where I started getting prepared for my mission, not, not on purpose. Uh, cause I wasn't really active in the church. My, uh, my mom got a divorce during that time. So we, that's when we moved back to Arizona. As soon as she got a divorce, we got out of Montana, a great place to live up in, uh, on Flathead Lake, Polson, Montana, great place to vacation, but nine months out of the year in the snow. So you only got a couple months of good weather. And, and then if it rains during one of those months, then, you know, that's your whole summer. So had a lot of fun. Like I said, got to, got to run around, got to just carry guns and shoot and just be free. But, you know, a lot of boredom too. So you, you know, boredom brings mischief, but luckily there wasn't much to get into trouble. Everybody's just kind of old, uh, wild west out there. The police don't really bother you much and realize kids will be kids. So had some advantages and disadvantages to growing up there, but the church definitely wasn't, the member membership wasn't strong when I was there. And so I just kind of fell out of the church at that point. So what happened in your life that put you on track to be able to go on a mission? When I uh, moved back to Arizona after, after graduating and just, there was just not, just working a job, not doing much, not really uh, very goal oriented. And I got in some trouble with the police. I mean, I had done some things, nothing that big, but this, this time it was something that I was accused of that I didn't do. So I didn't get caught for the stuff I did. I got for accused of something I didn't do. And I, that's kind of funny. Cause I, after experiencing that, I think of all these criminals who, or kids, you know, and things like that. They say, well, I didn't do that. And I said, yeah, but I bet you did a hundred other things before that. So it's kind of karma back on you. So, so. Uh, I just go in, I, uh, the police say, Hey, we heard about this and we want to, uh, have you come in, uh, get your statement on this. Cause somebody accused you of this. And I said, yeah, sure. Whatever. I wasn't, I didn't do anything. So I didn't feel guilty when I, I wasn't afraid or anything. And I just told the truth and I said, so can I go back to work now? And they go, Oh, you're under arrest and handcuffed me, took me and threw me in the cell. What are you talking about? What, what, what did I say? Well, I didn't even know what I said that I was convicting me and, or, you know, uh, that was illegal or did. And so anyway, cause I was a hundred percent honest with them and, uh, for once in my life probably, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so they take me back to the cell, lock me in. I'm, I think I'm a 19 at the time. And, uh, uh, I said a prayer, uh, heavenly father, if you get me out of this, I'll go on a mission. I promise I'll go on a mission within 30 minutes getting bailed out and I'm like, Oh crap, I got to go on a mission. <laughs> and so I, you know, had the, had the background of the, the gospel. Uh, and so immediately I started reading scriptures and praying and I committed to <clears throat> read one chapter a night and to get it to set if I'm going <clears> to <throat> go on a mission, you know, I, I'm going to do, I'm only going to do it if I have a testimony, I'm not just going to pack up and go. And so I um, <clears throat> just started reading scriptures every night and praying and expecting this big testimony to happen and, and have the Holy Ghost come, you know, this angel or something like that, or this overwhelming feeling come. And over the course of a year of reading, it might have been even a little more, but committing, keeping that commitment, I noticed my life changed without even, I wasn't even doing anything different. It just automatically happened from reading this book. And I didn't even notice it, but I was happier. I was walking around the neighborhood. I'd help 
see people, oh, you need help with that? And, and just, just, you know, looking out and just wanting to do, do more things and serve people. And, and, uh, and then uh, finally, after, I think it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was quite a while over a year. And I finally got that burning in the bosom feeling of, oh yeah, this is true after reading the Book of Mormon, I think my second or third time. And then when that happened, I looked back, that's when I realized I didn't need this burning in the bosom. I already knew just how many books in the world just from reading can change your life. And so that's, you know, I, I realized that now that not everybody has to have that. And, and I had my testimony and didn't even know it. So what a great insight there. And it sounds like once you had that in mind, then you were ready to serve. Yep. Yep. I, um, still had a little bit of repenting to do and, and, uh, a few things I was struggling with, but that was quickly overcome, you know, got my mission papers in and my, my family wasn't really act. Some half of my family's active and I don't even know if half at the time, but, and my, my mom wasn't really active and I just told her, yeah, I'm going to go on a mission now. And she goes, Oh, uh, I'm not surprised. And that's all she said. My mom was really uh, just not really involved in our lives. Just she'd go to work, come home and go in a room and sleep or, or whatever. And, and so, um, you know, but she definitely took care of everyone. She made sure all the bills were paid. And that was her main focus of just the financial part. So, yeah, it was that's all she said about me going on a mission. So I uh, got that all in and then got my uh, mission call to uh, the Canada Calgary mission and got my funding, saved some money. Then the ward took care of the rest because I knew, you know, my mom's situation and everything. And, and I just, I saved up as much as I could. I think I did pretty good uh, for the amount of time I had. And, and one interesting thing though, is that I always had, even though my family wasn't there, my mother wasn't there. I was always blessed with a, a surrogate family in Montana. There was a, a family that, um, my friends, parents, they, they kind of took me in and, and helped me see, you know, what a normal, uh, a family that's has a two parents is good parents. I should say, cause my, my stepfather wasn't really there. Yeah. So finally get to the MTC and uh, I get through the doors, walk in and go into my dorm right where the MTC opens up and you see all the dorms right there. I set my bags down and I said, wow, I can't, I couldn't even believe I was there. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's just a crazy thing to think, think that it actually happened. Well, it sounds like the Lord was mindful of you and placed people in your path to help you along. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. The, that Fanton, there was a family in Arizona that helped me out. Um, another one of my friend's parents, their son went on a mission. And then when he was gone, they let me borrow his car because my car broke down and, and they helped me get everything I needed. And I misplaced my plane ticket on the way to the, the MTC. She paid for a plane ticket. And then when I get there, it's in my, my carry on bag. But anyway, just, they went to the temple with me and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people in my path, and, and the Lord definitely blessed me to be able to, to do that. But I actually ended up serving in Spokane because of my visa. Out of all the eight missionaries in my 
uh, in my district only, I was the only one that didn't get my uh, visa to Canada. At the time, Reagan was fighting with the, uh, with the lumber, I guess. And so any little flaw, I guess they saw in your, your record, uh, they didn't give me the visa for some reason, but which was a blessing uh, because I was getting letters from all the everyone in my district. Wilkinson, said, when are you coming up? Hurry up. You got to get up here. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm still in the MTC. They just kept recycling me from district to district, thinking I'm going to get my visa any day. And then they finally shipped me off to Spokane. I get uh, uh, letters from these guys and they're saying, yeah, we handed out one Book of Mormon this week and I'm, I'm out in Spokane. We're handing out 10 a week. Hmm. And, and they're talking about the freezing cold. It was so cold. They couldn't leave the apartment. I'm like, Oh wow. I'm glad I'm actually here. And then I uh, got a second mission call saying I was permanently assigned to Spokane. So that was, that was really good. I was, I was thankful for that. Certainly. So after your mission, then uh, what did you do? Did you return to college at that point? Yes. Yeah. I went back to college uh, not knowing really what I wanted to do. So I dabbled in engineering, found out I liked the engineering aspect of it, but I don't like how difficult it was. First couple of years, math was still fun, but after, at a certain point, math isn't fun anymore. And I wasn't used to working hard in school. I just kind of floated my way through school. So I wasn't prepared to grind in and, and spend my every, every, all of my energy in, in college. And so I tried um, dental school with all the anatomy, physiology, chemistry, and that's that not that's not much easier. <laughs> no. And I got almost all the way through. Well, and uh, while I was doing that, and and then I got married. Uh, uh, I met my wife while I was in college, and so I put college on hold for a little bit, just to work and things. So I didn't I didn't finish college for quite a bit later. And what did you end up getting a degree in? Psychology. I think I finally finished when I was 46. Well, congratulations. That's a great accomplishment doing that over many years. Yeah, I think I had over 200 or so credits because I kept switching and changing. And and so what kind of things have you done in your career? Part of the reason I didn't finish college is because I got into home building in Arizona. And so I became an electrician. I started as a handyman and at the time I was making really good money. So I, I didn't know we had started having kids. We had, my wife wanted to have kids pretty quickly. And uh, so we had three boys right away. So I just kept working in the construction field. Then I moved that over to trained an electrician so I could make more money and uh, not get so dirty trying to find the easier path and the ones that make money, it seems that's always the case. The easier, the, the less physical labor, the more you make. And so that's what I did there and built an, a, and sold a few homes. We, we were kind of adventurous. Uh, you know, I would stop working a job since I was self-employed and we opened a toy store in the mall because my, it was whatever my kids were involved in. I, I liked to play with them. My, my career path was, was kind of, you know, in construction as construction would be good. And then as soon as construction would not be good, which was the, what was happening at the time, especially in Arizona, I would start taking classes again 
and uh, almost got through prerequisites at ASU for the nursing program, got everything, enough points. You had to have so many points to get accepted. And then I get the letter saying I didn't get in. And so I calculate all my points and I said, hey, no, I have enough points. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, we've already made the selection. So you can't get in. You'll have to wait till next year. And, uh, you know, I just kind of devastated that because uh, I was didn't want to really I wanted to be in go on from nursing to be a nurse practitioner to get, uh, you know, a little bit more responsibility, more pay, things like that. And so I just figured it wasn't in the cards, especially when I saw one of the guys that was at ASU at the in the program, he got accepted and he said he dropped out. And so I figured they would put me next in line or something since they made the mistake, but nobody contacted me. And anyway, you know, in retrospect, if it was me today, I definitely would have been more aggressive and called, but I was young. I didn't, had never experienced anything like that. Anyway, so that was now, I just think it wasn't, wasn't meant to be. After the market died in Arizona for home, home building, decided to commit to finishing college and said, we'll move to Utah and we'll get it. We could probably focus on college there. We were having some family problems with my wife's or both, both sides of our family. And so it's interesting, you know, at the time you think that, um, you know, things are going bad and, you know, this is, uh, just we're moving just to get away from, but again, looking back, you realize that the Lord is pushing you to make you do things because we typically don't listen. So we're stubborn and, and things happen. And, and so we moved to Utah, lived there for 14 years and, um, I finished college and I realized that it's interesting when, now I tell my kids this, I said, you guys, you know how many jobs I couldn't apply for before having that college degree. And then all of a sudden it's like a whole new world opens up. So, uh, I've, I didn't have parents to tell me what to do. And, and so, uh, you know, I just learned from on my own, but I'm just happy that I'm able to share that with my kids because they're all finishing their college degrees. Yes. Well, what ultimately brought you and your family to Texas? My wife was praying about it and she said she got a strong impression to move to Texas. My daughter was uh, really strong into cheerleading and we heard she follows these, this cheer, cheer athletics is huge, I guess, across the whole nation. They're based right here in their headquarters. I think they're only in Texas, maybe a few states now, but at the time they weren't. So we moved kind of out here for that and here, her here or for her. And I kept trying to get a job. And then I ended up uh, working out a transfer uh, with CenturyLink, who I was with. And they happened to need somebody, got a promotion. And uh, because just for moving, um, but CenturyLink, I found out wasn't AT&T is the big company out here. So now we were I going from CenturyLink, which is the called the CLEC, which is the main provider. And so everybody knows who you are to coming out here and nobody knows CenturyLink. And so it was a big change for me, just showing how tiny Utah is compared to giant Dallas, Texas and, and AT&T, AT&T. And so, um, yeah, moved out here and uh, after working with three other companies, finally got my job with AT&T and been there for going on almost five years. So. Hopefully I can retire from AT&T because I love it. 
Let's talk about your side job, your hobby, maybe we would call it. Yeah. You're one that's blessed with a lot of ideas. And uh, I know you said you think of yourself as a developer of these ideas. Tell us what that looks like in your life. Just anytime there's a problem, I consider myself a, a problem solver. I didn't realize that till just recently. That was the, the thing that I like to do was solve problems. I don't like to make the problem. If I see it, I just, if I'm going to complain about, I'm not going to complain about it, something that I can't fix. And so I'll complain about it as I'm trying to fix it and say, oh, this is the problem. Oh, okay. I need to do this. And, and I'll actually get a resolution to it. And so I've done that uh, with a lot of jobs, invented something while working at Coca-Cola and had all kinds of inventions. And the things that hold me back is I'm not very good at marketing and not good at raising money. I don't know how to do that side of it. I know how to make the product, but I've always failed at the, at the other two things. And the, the money part is getting easier. Um, and I've, I've just made the, heard this in business, never use your own money. So I've never made that mistake, thank goodness. Well, a couple of times, but nothing big. And it's always luckily worked out where it came to just these ideas. Um, just some, some are just sitting in a drawer and nothing's happening with them. I have a squirt gun that I think is would be a great thing. My kids got the super soakers, three little boys, big old guns. I'm filling them up. I'm pumping them up. Three boys sitting there pumping these things up and filling them up. They're leaking. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And so I came up with an automatic squirt gun that you can fill it. You just put it on the little adapter. It fills up. It's battery operated. And then it can just squirt. You don't have to pump or anything. So just charge the batteries and it'll last for hours. And so you have one of those currently. Something you could take to market if you got it really thought out and developed. Yep. Yeah. The prototype works good. Um, just, Yeah. Money and marketing. With the Sweet Shaper, it was, it was actually a, a toy that was out, uh, I got for Christmas. And it's kind of like the, um, the Play-Doh, but, you know, shape, it makes candy. The, the Play-Doh thing, and you put shapes and squirts out stuff. Well, this was for candy. And I got it for Christmas. I thought it was the coolest thing. And it broke, like, within the first hour of using it. And so for some reason that stuck in my mind from five years old, my whole life, I kept telling my kids about it. It wasn't available anywhere. And uh, so I actually made some prototypes as my kids were growing up to show them what it was like and uh, played around with it just year after year and just set it back in the closet and I'd take it out. We'd play with it a little bit. And right after we moved to Texas, I, my wife started bothering me about it because I had told her, hey, there's a good way to market this. There's this thing, this could solve all our problems. We've always failed at marketing and they have this thing called Kickstarter. What if we put it on there? And she's like, yeah, yeah, do it. And then she just kept bugging me and bugging me. And so within a few months, we had a, a working prototype. You have to make a video of it. You have to have a full working model. We made a cool video on Kickstarter that Kickstarter doesn't take it down. You can still watch it. It's pretty cool watching. It's fun to go back and and watch that whole video of our sweet shape. Well, what they call it the sweet shaper, but I called it the candy crusher. I didn't, I wanted to be more tough. The candy crusher, crush candy. And so I put it on Kickstarter and then I thought I had done all my research, but one thing I didn't realize is they don't have a toy section on Kickstarter. And so it, nothing just flopped, few, five or so sold 
didn't reach my goal, so it doesn't hurt anything. But uh, unbeknownst to me, Mattel and ABC got together and were making a show about toy inventors just for this right at that exact same time. And so they contacted me and said, you want to be on a TV show? And it was really, they don't, ABC doesn't co- contact you. They have other companies contact you. And they have these real, this black website that you fill out all your information with white lettering. That's called Mystic Studios. And it just looked really, really shady. And I'm like, ah, well, what do I have to lose? I mean, what are they going to steal my invention? I don't care. I don't not do anything with it anyway. And so I went ahead and did it. And the next thing you know, I'm on an online interview with it. Some lady in her apartment in California, Los Angeles. Okay, we'll go move to the next stage and all through the next stage. And they send me out. They say, oh, we want you on the show. They send me out a plane ticket. I'm still skeptical of the whole thing. And a friend of mine, he's like, uh, they sent you a ticket? And yeah. And hotel reservations and a flight and everything. All expenses paid. Yeah. And he goes, dude, this is a real thing. This isn't a joke. And I go, really? And I, yeah. And I, I thought I'd just try it out, see what's going to happen. What do I have to lose? And so when I showed up at ABC Studios in Manhattan, I had to take a picture to show it was real. And yeah, I'm actually here. So it was, it was pretty cool. Tell us about being on that show. What was that like? It was just really fast. They shot the whole season in seven days. They had seven episodes. And so they had, uh, I think, six inventors for each episode and then one winner of each episode. And then finally, at the end of the week, went to the finals. And so the first week, they didn't tell us they weren't going to feed us breakfast um, or anything. And we didn't have a dressing room. They're keeping us in the stairwell at ABC Studios. And I'm like, what? And I can see Dr. Oz sets right there and all these other, and they're keeping us in the back. And and I was like, what is going on here? This is like really not very professional. And, and, uh, but the sets were, you know, they were really, they, everything just looks different on TV behind the scenes. It's all wood and chairs and really trashy in the back. And, but as you get in the set and they're filming it, well, then I win my episode and I be, I won that part. And then they start treating me right. And then they give me a they gave me a dressing room the next for the finals and they gave me all the food I wanted. And if I need anything, they'd go to the store and get it for me. So I saw how things worked at that point that now you're important because you won. So, and the prize was a contract with Mattel and your toy gets sold exclusively in Toys R Us uh, if you win. So that was the big thing. And then all the people and backstage, the cameramen and everything, and all the assistants that treated me like I was nothing before. Like, hurry up, get over here. What are you doing? Being rude to us after that were really, really nice. Man, you know how lucky you are? Wow. And you got a big, you know, things like that. So, And as I understand the format of the show, it's almost like a Shark Tank format where you're presenting to some judges, but these judges are children. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Little kids, I uh, think. 12 and under somewhere. I think one of them was eight, uh, eight, year, eight years old. He was the best one. I, I liked him a lot. He was, I don't know if you remember, his name was Noah, but they found him at a fair in Pennsylvania. Uh, he kept saying apparently. So I did that to him on the show. I kept saying apparently, hey, that's my thing. Oh, that's fantastic. So with that Mattel contract, then do they then take it into a little more development and provide that marketing 
placing it at Toys R Us then? Yeah. So interesting enough. So I didn't, I didn't win the first place. I won second place. You read the contract. It says they can, they have the choice to take your up to six months to make the decision to take your toy or not. And I just thought, you know, Hey, that would be cool if it goes all the way to the end and they pick up my toy and, you know, I prayed about that and said, Hey, if that's your will, heavenly father, you know, that would be a neat little thing for me to happen. And next thing you know, they're calling me, Hey, we want to put your, pick your toy up. And then it came down to only decision was upload all your pictures. They already had the toy in their possession. They weren't, they didn't give any of them back. We had to leave them there. And so I had to upload all my drawings and all my ideas. I had a lot of ideas. I had, I wanted to develop this to be an online thing where people could make their own molds uh, and do it through for seasons um, for like holidays, all the different holidays and things like that. And Mattel has uh, all the rights to Disney. Uh, they have every toy, every movie, all the rights to that, except for Lego. And I thought, wow, this could just be really cool. You could be doing Star Wars and this and that. And, and uh, they chose to do, they didn't involve, involve me on any of this. Didn't ask my opinion. They just called me one day and said, hey, this is what we got. And they showed it to me. I'm still excited, but there wasn't anything that was copyrighted. They just did their own little designs that were nothing. And there was no marketing. They expected the show to do all the marketing for them. They didn't have one commercial. And so every, they did that for all of us. And so the toys pretty much didn't do anything. And then it didn't help that Toys R Us went bankrupt right after. Um, but even at that, even before that, the toys weren't doing much. None of our toys were selling well. Um, but to me, I didn't care because I had the option. The only decision I was able to, that they had for me to make was, do you want the six figure payout or do you want a percentage? And so out of all the six people that were chosen, I was the only one that took the six figure payout and everybody else took a percentage and, and didn't get much from the whole thing. Because the toys just weren't selling. Yeah. Yeah. They got basically like a, a penny and a half for each toy that sold. So I, I saw those figures and I'm like, no way I'm not, you know what I mean? I'll have to, we'll have to sell. And so they were, they were telling me the guy that I spoke with at Mattel was really nice. He's like, do you know how many Barbies, the number one selling toy in America is the Barbie and it only sells a million toys. It sells a million toys a year. If perchance yours does that, he gave the figures and said, this is how long it's going to take to equal what you're going to get on the payout. And I was like, yes, I'll take the payout. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah. Lucky. I mean, it was just. Don't always make the, the right decisions. So, but I was lucky in this at this, this time. Well, you mentioned that you have other ideas or you, do you have other things that you're working on that you hope to bring to development soon? Yeah. Um, uh, still want the squirt gun. I just still think that's going to be a, a great thing. But uh, what I'm currently working on is um, liquid oxygen bottle. Uh, they have oxygen bottles, but they're just not enough oxygen in there for sports. They're expensive. It's basically a one-time use. And they've had these out for a long time, so they they just don't sell well. And, and not a lot of people even know that they exist, but they're in almost every store. So I have it in the size of, instead of a big aerosol can like this, this is my size right here. Mine is liquid oxygen. This is just gas oxygen. 
So, you know, this is the, the size of mine right here. So maybe a half the size. Yeah. And quite, you know, just fits in the palm of your hand. So I work out, um, ever since I've been trying it, I had used that and, uh, got personal bests every single time I used it. So it was pretty cool. I'm out of it, but I'm, I had a, had a meeting on Monday with a company in Taiwan uh, that we've been going back and forth and we finally uh, are going to have our first conversation face-to-face -face on Tuesday. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, they might. Uh, it was about a half a million to get do all the development of the, just to make the containers that hasn't, and not even filled or anything else. And, and they want to waive those fees to partner with me. So that's pretty nice. Fantastic. Well, you've dabbled with a lot of ideas over the years. What advice would you give to others who are blessed with lots of ideas? So I, this is what I've heard, you know, never give up. But what I experienced on this TV show is that some people took their kids' college fund and others mortgaged their houses and got into huge debt to do these things, to do uh, patents. Um, and they just, they never get, they, they took that advice. Don't give up on your dream. I don't think that's what that means. I don't, I think it means continue to work on other things. But if your first dream, if your first idea doesn't work, don't hold on to it. Just means you, you're working, you've got to develop, you've got to learn and grow and get to the thing that will be marketable. But these people just took one idea and, and they're, you know, in their 40s, 50s, they're broke, living with their parents, with their kids living there because they devoted their whole life to this. No, you got to move on, keep your regular job, keep your income. And if this doesn't work, shelve it, put it on the shelf. Maybe it'll work later, but go on to something else, but don't give up on your dream, but don't devote your whole life. These people were, it was an obsession with them. I mean, I, I, they asked one of the questions was how much did you, how much money have you put into this? And I put like a hundred or $2 into it. And, and people were saying half a million and a million. And so I, I said, uh, well, I didn't want to sound, you know, like I didn't do anything with it. So I said, uh, around 5,000, which is, it's not being dishonest, but it's, you know, I, I just wanted to make a bigger number and it wasn't big enough. So they didn't put it on the show anyway, but. <laughs> well, it makes your return sound all the more impressive. Yeah, I guess it just, just, they were, they were highlighting all these people that devoted their whole life to their idea. But <clears throat> so what I inadvertently having all these ideas and shelving them and just moving on till something works is what I feel is the right thing to do. I, I just saw too many people and I felt so bad for them because they were penniless and, and then they didn't win on the show even then. And they've been doing this for 20 years. And no matter what the critique they got, the kids, a lot of, lot, there was a lot of dolls on the show. The kids would say, Oh, that doll is scary. Oh, it's creepy. And how many times have these people heard this? I wonder. But, you know, and the Mattel telling them, well, we got, a, we got enough dolls out there, people. And these people I'm working on these for, they're devoting their whole life to it. So I guess just don't get obsessed. And if something doesn't work, doesn't mean don't give up, you're giving up on it, but move on to something else that may work. That's what I would say is just keep trying and, and uh, not specifically on one thing and try, try different things if the first thing doesn't work or shelve it until... You can get the marketing or whatever, think about it, but continue on with your life. Keep your job. Don't make that the center focal, the point of your life. You spoke earlier about your 
conversion to the gospel really through studying the Book of Mormon. And clearly your life has taken a positive path because of your commitment to living the gospel and then serving a mission and so forth. How would you say your faith influences your life, whether it relates specifically to how you deal with all these ideas for development or just your life in general? It's definitely every aspect of everything I do. You know, looking looking back on that whole uh, Mattel ABC TV shows experience may sound weird, but uh, I was the only one that got that amount of money. And when we moved here, we sold our house in Utah. Moved here, or we closed on the house, getting ready to move. And then the FDIC says there's something wrong with the title. We can't give you the title to the house. You can't sell it. And we had negotiated, they were supposed to have all their end done, something with a foreclosure back in 2008. And we figured it was all worked out, but it hadn't been. And we didn't know that until we tried to sell it. But so they said, hey, we want to negotiate what we were going to sell the house to you for. We want an extra $200,000. And we said, no, we'll give you an extra 100000 And they, you know, they had a silver barrel. This is the FDIC, the federal government. We were scared. We didn't know what to do. And so... So we lost about $100,000 on that. And the money that I make up on the show was exactly $100,000. So whether that's, you know, God send or whatever, that's how I see it as. I, I think that Heavenly Father, I was compelled to meet immediately when we moved to, to Texas to finish this toy that I'd been thinking of for 25 years and made prototypes of and to finally finish it. And then boom, boom, boom. As soon as I put it on Kickstarter, that was only a two-week thing. And then ABC contacts me right away. I get on the show and everything goes completely to the end. And the price happened to be $100,000, exactly what I lost. To me, it seems, I, I feel, I'll say this, whether it's true or not, that the show was made for me. It got canceled the next year. And, and so anyway, every blessing we have, I know whether it's that specific or not, I know it definitely came from Heavenly Father, of course. And and everything in my life, every decision I make, uh, work, you know, I always pay my, make sure and pay my tithing, pay my fast offerings, uh, rely on Heavenly Father for every aspect in my life, in my job. I pray before business meetings to be able to do the best I can to provide for my family. I, I know that Heavenly Father blesses us just like he says in the scriptures that the fowls of the air don't know where they're next, what they're going to have, but I will provide for them. I provide for everybody. And so I know that everything I have is because of Heavenly Father. For, and so everything I do, I try to do the best I can, try to just do the basics, um, learning that basics are the most important thing, saying your prayers, reading your scriptures, church attendance, temple attendance. I mean, it's interesting how these four to five little things in your life will keep the spirit with you and keep you from temptation. And so, yeah, everything. My faith is everything that I that I have. I know without Heavenly Father, I would be nothing. It's not necessarily, I know you're not supposed to put it on material things, but it does make it easier to serve if you if uh, if you don't have to worry about those things so much. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks for being a guest on our podcast. This has been really insightful and interesting to hear about you and your experiences and uh, best of wishes as you uh, look to take to market some other great ideas. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing about those in the future.
thank you for your time and thank you for having me on. Our guest on this episode has been Barry Wilkinson from Prosper, Texas. If you'd like to see what Barry's Sweet Shaper toy looks like, you can find it by searching the internet for Sweet Shaper. And you can also search online for video of Barry's appearance on the ABC show, The Toy Box. He appeared in season one, episode six. Barry's testimony of the importance of doing the basic things to invite the spirit and live happily is a great reminder for all of us. And his ability to develop that idea has resulted in clear blessings for him and his family. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan. Eric Egan.